Take a copy of your scriptures and meet me at Mark chapter 6 as we look at the last half of verse 6 and go into verse 13. Thankfully, you all could be here today. We have a number of people that are, uh, that are traveling and others that are feeling under the weather, and so we want to make sure that we're praying for traveling mercy for those who are traveling and uh, wellness for those that are not able to be here. It's always missed when uh, our church family isn't always able to all get together. But here we are. We're able to get, or, get around His Word. So would you stand in honor of His Word as we look at Mark chapter 6. Again, the back half of verse 6 going through verse 13. This is the Word of God before us. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. Um, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. May the word of God be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Would you please be seated? I'm not being seated. I'm just getting my water. I'm going to need it this morning, so... So God has called us all on mission. I don't know if when you became a follower of Jesus that someone told you that. I I know what was told to me was, now I'm going to heaven. And that sounded like a great thing um, when you consider the other alternative. I, though, was not told about discipleship and I was not told that I'm on mission now for Christ. Over time, I learned that by reading the scriptures and by seeing other people, um, and especially as I got off to college, I was very blessed to be able to get around some folks that had already absorbed that, both not only adults, but those who were fellow classmates. And I saw that they were living out an authentic Christian life because they recognized that everywhere that they were going, everything that they were doing, they were on mission for Christ. That was very refreshing to me, and I was very thankful for that because I didn't want my life to simply be just coasting and cruising until I ended up getting to heaven. So all of us are on mission. And all of us, I believe, and every church and every individual in that one mission that God has given to us, which we'll talk about in just a second, has a unique mission that God has given with the talents that he's given you, the gifts that he has given you, the resources that he has given you to be able to do a unique thing on the cause of Christ under the umbrella of the overall mission. When Jesus, at the beginning of uh, the gospel of Mark, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That is an overall mission that Jesus has. And I believe that's an overall mission that God has given to us, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ is coming back again, but he also instituted his kingdom here through his church. And he calls us to turn from our sin and our brokenness and to receive the gospel, to be saved, if you want to put it that way. 
Later on, at the end of his ministry, Jesus gives what's called the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and he promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. That was an overall mission that God has given the entire church and has given you and me as a mission. So if we're not doing that, and we don't see that as something for us, then there is something about that that we have to reckon with and repent of. We need to make sure that we realize this overall mission. I say that, and I bring up the unique mission about this, because when we get ready to read this, we're going through Mark, and Jesus had just finished um, basically being rejected because he had so offended, so offended his own hometown of Nazareth. So he moved on, and it talks about in verse 6 that he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. So he didn't stop. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't cry, and he didn't, as my grandmother used to say, he didn't pune. He just, he went on. He went on preaching and teaching. Many of us, when we have someone look at us crossways, we're, we're a wreck for a week. We've got to keep going. got to keep putting that one foot in front of the other for the cause of Christ. So this mission that God has given the disciples here, there are some transferable principles for us, and I assure you we will visit those. But we also have to realize that just as the disciples had a unique mission for this time and this place for certain people, God has, I believe, given ARBC and all of you who are part of ARBC a particular mission for this time and place and people that plugs in. Are you with me this morning? I know it's cloudy outside, sunshiny in here. That where we are all plugging into that overall great commission of going and making disciples. We have to see what God has for us in this. So first of all, let's remind ourselves of the calling of Christ and the Christ who calls. The calling of Christ. Well, you see in verse 7 that he said that he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirit. So let's camp out here for just a bit because it's important for us to see what this is all about. These are the apostles. At one point they were called the disciples, but when Jesus began to call these 12 to his mission, he began to call them apostles. Well, if you go back to chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, it talks about, and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles. See, I didn't make that up. It's right there. It says that they might be with him, and they were. They saw all the things that Jesus did. They had a front row seat to everything that Jesus did. And everything that we have in the New Testament is the basis of all that Jesus showed them and taught them. So we now have access to that information. Again, it's called the New Testament. And it says that they would have authority to cast out demons, which we'll get to in a moment. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And it's important for us to know that Peter, James, and John are always listed first. They were the inner circle of Jesus. Peter is always mentioned first because he was the rock upon which, the, the confession that he had, upon which the church would be built. And then he goes on, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These are the twelve. 
And it says later on in chapter 4, verse 11, where it's, uh, he's talking to the disciples. He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So he would talk to them and couch everything in a hidden way to those that weren't part of that inner circle of the disciples and the apostles. But he would let everybody know that we're a part of, his gr- part of that group of the apostles, exactly what the secrets of the kingdom are. He does the same thing for us. When we become Christians, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And some of you who are new in Christ, you are shocked by how when you would read the Bible, you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't get it. Now, keep in mind, there's still some things I'm trying to figure out in the Bible. There's some, there's some passages in there that I'm like, whoa, okay, I got to dig. But the stuff that's clear is now clear, whereas it wasn't before. It was like you were looking through, as Paul says, a glass you know, veiled. But now things are clear. Well, that's the Holy Spirit opening up your mind and your hearts to help you to understand the secrets of the kingdom. That should rejoice you. You should take joy in that knowing that God has not sought to keep his word private from you, dear Christian. And we should be awake and alert every time that the word is open. And we should do that every single day, alertly digging into the word. Maybe even first thing in the morning, getting your day going. And understanding what his word has to say. Well, so he, we go back to uh, chapter 6. And he's talking about he's, he, he called the 12 to send them. And that word send, apostello, which is where we get the word apostle. So in, in everyday language, it was one who is sent. Well, Jesus appropriated this language as one who were commissioned and sent by Jesus, representing Jesus with the authority and power of Jesus. Now that is heavy. That is a heavy load. That is a heavy responsibility. And I would even say in the best possible terms, that's a heavy burden. There are times when God has given the prophets the word of the Lord and the prophets would receive that and describe that as a burden. Because there's some weight and heft to it. This is God's word. We're not going to play around with it. We are going to make sure that we are representing Christ and representing what he has to say as clearly and concisely and powerfully and passionately as we possibly can. That's why the Apostle Paul says that I want to rightly divide the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. Rightly divide the word of truth. I'm going to make sure that I am representing Jesus correctly in all that I do. And this isn't just for the preachers, by the way. This is for all of us who are followers of Jesus, whom he's given his word to and given his truth to. We don't play around with this. Is everybody with me this morning? Yes. We've got to make sure that we're looking at this. And so he commissioned the 12. The difference between a disciple is a learner sitting at the feet of the master. An apostle is one who's been commissioned by the master, represents the master, moving forward with the master. It's a legal term. And so when you see in Ephesians 2.20 where he's talking about how he is building the church upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. What Jesus is doing is giving these apostles training because one day he would not be with them and they would have to carry it on. And generation after generation after generation is called to carry it on until now here we are taking the baton of the generations before us. Here we are in Denver, 2022, you know, a whisker away from 2023, and God has called us to take that baton and pass it on. We have to make sure 
that we recognize this. So Christ, Christ was reminding them repeatedly, though they didn't hear it. And you know how that is. Sometimes people tell us stuff all the time. I never heard it. I never heard it. We were at, a, at, at our um, pastor's conference and annual meeting. And I was reminded of another fellow that was a pastor there. And somebody would always come up to him and say, I didn't hear that announcement. Well, I, I put it in the bulletin and we put it up on the screen and we put it on the website and we sent out an email and we, we announced it in the worship service. And their response was, well, you didn't tell me. See, we only, sometimes we only receive it when we're in a position and we think we're in a position to be ready, but it's not like it hasn't been said. And sometimes you may have heard the word over and over again, and all of a sudden it's like, well, he finally, he finally gotten down to preach him. No, the Holy Spirit has now put you in a position to listen. We've been saying the same things. I basically say the same things. I'm not that creative. I basically say the same things every single Sunday. Right? Okay? Yeah, we know that. Got it. But, there, but it's all tethered to a message of Jesus and his saving work. It's all tethered to that. And so when we look at this, he sent them out two by two, because if you look through all through the scriptures, like in Deuteronomy 17, 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So you need two witnesses to verify truth. And it says the same thing in Numbers 35, 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now, we've got to be careful because when I was reading through this earlier, I remember when uh, I, I, we had an intern in my previous church. It was a college guy, and, and we were going, I mean, we lived in a, in a little town called Athens. It's spelled Athens, but they pronounced it Athens. I don't know why, but they did. And it messed me up every time I got through Acts 17. It talks about Athens, and I kept saying Athens, Greece, and it didn't work everywhere else. It, it just, it was a mess. But there's 200 people in that little community. Five churches, 200 people. Be that as it may. And we would go door to door and, and, and all. And I remember how wonderful it was because I've tried going door to door by myself and it's been fine. But there's something about having that support when you're going with somebody else. And I transferred that onto this is what's going on here. I believe that there is something like that where if you do something and you're with somebody else, it's helpful. You have that encouragement, you have that support, and, and if someone slams a door in your face, well, at least you've got that, that person over there that hasn't. You're walking with you and being with you and all. But really, there was a legal aspect to this. Jesus, wanted, Jesus was sending them on a clear mission, and he wanted to make sure that when they came back, they both were able to testify to the person and work of Jesus, but they would also deliver him a report. Jesus had some things that he wanted to make sure was going on. Now, the disciples had a lot of missions they were going to go on, just like Jesus is calling us to a lot of missions. But they're not cookie-cutter missions. And that's the second thing I really want you to realize, is that all, not all missions are cookie-cutter. There are different things that we, we end up going through, but we're all a part of the mission Monday through Saturday. And so in verse 8, he says, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff. Now, later on, when he was telling them to go places, he would tell them to take stuff with them. Because they were going to be doing this for their entire life. This was going to be their livelihood. Not here. This was a short-term, really short-term mission. And he was saying there, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Why? You, you see people up in the mountains and they got the walking sticks and all. Well, I don't think that's part of it. I think it was for their own protection, right? No, but he says no bread, 
no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. In other words, it could be a short trip. You're not going to be packing. It's going to be a short trip. You're going to wear what you got. You're going to have sandals to make you a little more fleet of foot, and you're going to be on your way. And what the idea was is that they were showing the ones that they were preaching to, and they were also learning themselves that this was going to be a mission where there was a complete and total dependence on Christ. And when they were doing that, not that when they were bringing a bunch of stuff they weren't, but on this one, they had a specific mission that they were called to. Now, the sandals, it's interesting about the sandals because we see this when Jesus was taking the people out of, when, Christ, when God was leaving the people out of, uh, out of Egypt through the Passover. This was the last plague that they were sending the people of Egypt, taking their gods down one at a time. Each of those plagues went after one of the gods of the Egyptians, showing that there is one true God. And the last one was the plague of the firstborn. And that plague of the firstborn is when they instituted, when, it, when was instituted, the Passover. And a piece of the Passover in Exodus twelve eleven it says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why? Because when it was time to go, you had to be ready to go. And that's what was going on here. When it was time for you to go, because it was going to show that there were going to be some people that were going to receive the message. And if that's the case, you stay there and you keep teaching. But if there's going to be people that are going to reject your message and you needed to get out of there quickly. And there were some other things that were in place. Well, what, like what? Well, it's Jesus begins to talk here. Those of you that have the red letters, you're saying, well, there they are. Okay. And Jesus says in verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave. And it says this, shake the dust off, sh- shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, we see this happening a few times in the book of Acts, that when they would leave certain lands and certain pagan lands that wouldn't listen to the gospel, they would symbolically shake the dust off their feet. But in later rabbinic writings, the reason they did that was it was whenever the Jews would visit Gentile lands, then you would come back Take the, take the, shake the dust off your feet because they didn't want anything pagan, not even pagan dirt in Jewish land. That's how serious they were about this. Now keep in mind, this was to be done by the Jews to Gentile pagan lands. Now, listen to what Jesus is saying. What kind of towns are the disciples going to? Gentile or Jewish towns? Take a guess, you got a 50-50 shot. Jewish, yes. So they're going, just making sure. I know it's cloudy outside. I'm serious. That's a big deal for us here. But hang in there. Because when you go to Jewish towns and you're shaking the dust off your feet like they were pagans, do you see the problem? That, that where they were hearing Jesus and you're like, you mean we're supposed to be talking? That's only for over there. And you're saying we're supposed to be doing that here? And he said, yes. This is important for us to understand especially for all of us here who, who place a high value today, politically, socially, governmentally, whatever, on Israel. I heard, a very, I heard John Hagee say this one time. John Hagee said, because he is very much into prophecy in Israel, he said 
that those who are part of the people of Israel would end up going to heaven. Do you see a problem there? If you are leaning into Israel, 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 and you're leaning into, you know, there is a conversation about whether the Israel that's there now is the same of the Israel of, of the Old Testament. But I digress. Boy, we could really go off on that. I know where some of you are on this, so I want you to hear me out. Even if you're a part of the people of Israel and you reject the Messiah, you're not going to heaven. And, and the reason is not because we're better than you. No, we are all pagans. We are all outside of Christ. Christ is shaking the dust off of his feet when that day will come and he takes his people to himself. We are all there, regardless of whatever our history may be. If you read in, 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 in Ephesians, no, that ebook, Ephesians, if you read in Ephesians, it talks about there are some who are close, who are near, and some who are far. The near ones were the Jews. The far ones were the Gentiles because, and there's a very good reason why the Jews were considered near. In Romans 9, verse 4 and 5, Paul talks about this. He's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh because Paul was born Jewish. But Paul says this, they, the Jews, are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the Jews, close. All of the promises of the Old Testament that were brought to bear and completed in the New Testament came through the Jews. Even the Messiah came through the Jews, but they rejected the Messiah by and large. And those that rejected the Messiah will have the same consequence as the Gentiles or anyone else that rejects Christ. So when we're looking at this passage, I sense that when we look at it, we look at it, we're like, well, this is really cool information. Well, I didn't know Jesus sent, the, sent the, those apostles on this particular thing to do. And boy, that's really interesting that they were to go two by two. And wow, sandals and staff, but no other stuff. Huh, that's really interesting. No, no, no. The, 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 the point of all this is this. Jesus was so passionate and desirous that people would turn from their sin and trust Christ and Christ alone because anything away from Christ leads to destruction and decay, demoralization, discouragement, anything that's outside of it. it may feel really good up front. And we've all been there when it seems like we have a little bit of freedom outside of mom and dad or grandma or grandpa and all of a sudden we're, we're, out, we're getting to do whatever we want and yeah, they don't know how to have fun until you find out. Oh, that's why they were telling me that. That's why they were trying to get me in the Bible. That's why they were trying to get me to church. This place is a dumpster fire away from the things of God. But coming to Christ, and it doesn't matter who you are, your biological lineage, that's not it. Consider the ones that the people were going through, they all loved and trusted and beloved Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. But Abraham is more than that. In Genesis 15, 6, which I've said to you numerous times whenever I bring up Abraham because he's so important. Because the way we read the Bible is this, Old Testament, 
New Testament. Well, which would you prefer to have? If you have something in your home, would you prefer to have something that's old or would you prefer to have something that's new? When you're hearing people that are advertising for something, do they say new and improved or they say you should buy this because it's old and lousy? No, they, you, you go after new and improved. And so what ends up happening is the way we read the, new, the, the Bible, we take three quarters of the Bible and we take it out and we just look at the New Testament, one quarter of our Bible. But the, the thing is, is that I think a lot of it has to do with our training and our teaching. I can go into that at some point. But we need to, instead of reading the Bible like this, Old Testament, Old, eh, New Testament. All right. You got to read the Bible this way because there's two covenants. And I know this is, hang with me for these next 30 seconds or longer. That'd be good. But there's two covenants that are moving all through Scripture. One is the covenant of Abraham. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. All the way back in Genesis is the gospel. Because Abraham is not working toward God being on his side. Abraham believed in what God's work was already doing, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When we come to Christ, that's exactly what happens to us. We believe in the work of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We believe in him, and he credits it to us as righteousness. We don't work our way up. There's no ladder big enough to get right with God. There's nothing we can do to get right with God. Christ came down to bring us up, to make us right with God. There's nothing we can do. And so that other covenant that's running through is the covenant of Moses. Do this and live. You live by obeying the commandments. Well, who can do that? So we need Abraham on our side to help us realize that the only way that we can be made right is by God through Christ crediting our account with his righteousness, not trying to work our own righteousness in. That is a critical thing because it's not about biological lineage. It's about spiritual lineage. We have to realize that because one day, why was Christ so passionate about this? Because in, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it talks about that all of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But Christ is one of grace. He wouldn't do that, right? Some of you read out of the King James. And the King James, um, in some of those, in some of their manuscripts that they use, it's all translations, and there's no translation, except for a couple, New World Translation, be careful. There, but when you begin to look at these evangelical translations, they're translations, all of them. And so in a couple of manuscripts that the King James uses, there is Mark 6.11, where it says, Verily I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Hear what's being said. Genesis 19 shows that Sodom and Gomorrah had gone so far away from God's design and hating the things that God's all about, which I believe is, kind of the, is, is where we're living right now. We're living in a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. Billy Graham said that if God doesn't judge America, then he's got to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah, and I believe he is exactly right. But notice what's being said here. You read Genesis 19 about all the stuff, all the disgusting stuff that went on in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and how Abraham was negotiating. Lord, if you can just find 10 righteous people, because he was worried about his nephew Lot, who decided to go live there, because it looks so good. Not everything that looks good is good. He goes and lives there, and then all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I, need a, I need to think about my nephew Lot. He negotiates God down from 50 to 10 until finally God says, that's it, 10. They couldn't find 10. And Sodom and Gomorrah was burned to the ground because of their disgusting behavior and attitude. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice what's being said here. It is being said here, and it's said elsewhere, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why? Because they rejected the Messiah that was standing right before them. It's worse. That's what's going to happen. And you say, well, Christ isn't standing before me. By the Holy Spirit, he is. By his word, he is. Christ is right here among us. And if you say, I'm, I'm done, I'm not going to do anything with anything about Christ, it's going to be worse for you than it is for even Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what the word is saying. And so Jesus is like, I don't want that for you. Your godly mom and dad doesn't want that for you. You may have children that are trying to talk to you into trusting in Christ. They don't want that for you. That's why they keep talking to you about it. That's why they keep being annoying to you about it. And that's why even when people right up until death, their heart is so intractable and hard about the gospel. Even when death is facing them, they say, I don't want to hear it. It will be worse for you on that day than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Read Genesis 19. Get that picture before you. So they went out and proclaimed, verse 12, that people should repent. They cast out demons. Now, what about that? Well, Jesus was showing them and and giving them power to be able to do that because they needed to see physically the power that Jesus had to rescue them spiritually. Listen, no matter how many miracles you may get physically, one day you will die. That's why you need the ultimate miracle of Christ coming and rescuing you from your sin and from your brokenness. We have a mission. All of us. Every single one of us. Spurgeon was right. We're either a missionary or we're an imposter. I don't want to be an imposter. I don't want to stand before the judgment seat and have to give an account for the fact that I was a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 80 years and never shared my faith once. That I never took time for the Bible when I could take time for a video game or the New York Times. That I, that I wouldn't take time to pray, but I'll sure get on Facebook or social media and I'll talk to everybody about the pickle I ate for lunch. Man, our, our priorities. Jesus sent them on a mission, a specific mission. He sends us on missions. And those short-term missions, whether we go to to Spain next year or whether we've gone to Trinidad and Tobago, it's not like, okay, I'm going to be on mission. We went in in 2019. I'm going to be on mission November 1st, and then I'm off mission November 9th. Now, that's just a specific mission that God has called you to that specific place and time. And there's an overall mission of we have to go and make disciples. Some of us are spending a lot of time building our treasure here on earth. You know what's going to happen to that treasure here on earth? 
That there's reasons why preachers used to say there ain't no U-Hauls on them hearses. What are we doing with what God has given to us? What are we doing with the breath that He's given to us, the eyeballs that He's given to us, the brain, the feet, the, the whatever? What are we doing with what He has given to us? We are all on mission to help people be connected to the truth and hope in Jesus. For those of you who may be here and you may be connected to church, but you're not connected to Christ. Or for those of you who are connected to neither. I say this to you. Even with all of your intractability, even with all of your callousness of heart and shaking your fist at God saying, I don't need you. Here he is, continually putting the cross before you continually putting his empty tomb before you, continually sending the Holy Spirit to knock those obstacles down. Because even though you are expressing dynamic hatred toward him, for whatever reason that I certainly cannot understand, he loves you. And he sent his son for you. Even as you might have been there driving, being one of the people to drive the nail in, he died for you for that. And I would just say, come. Unclench that fist. Unclench that jaw when you think of the Lord. And please come. I'm doing three funerals this week. And there's a bunch of them that we were really surprised that they went. Some of them we didn't think, some of them we expected. I may not see you next week. And I want to see you in heaven. I want to be able to call you a brother and sister in Christ. Unclench that jaw. Unclench that fist. And come. That way when your funeral does come, and if I end up having to do it, I can approach it by knowing I'll see you again. But I can approach it knowing that you're with Jesus who loves you, and you will see all that he is. And you will be grateful that you unclench that fist, you unclench that jaw. Death is a reality, but so is Christ. Trust in all that he is and trust in all that he's done. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us the mission. Thank you for rescuing us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, to that mission. Father, there are people in this room and outside of this room that have for all of their life said, no, no, I will not, no. You have said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Thank you, Father, for the the salvation, but also the mission that you have given to us. And forgive us, Lord, when we will not say anything to anybody else about Jesus. Forgive us. Set us right. Convict us. 
How can we who are Christians not tell anybody else about you? How can we do that? But Lord, you've promised to give us the power. You've promised to give us the words. And more importantly, Lord, you've promised to give us yourself. You said you would never leave us alone. Give us the strength to take that step, to say that word, to love those people that will say no. So that we would be a model before them because we have said yes. Whatever you've asked us to do, we've said yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I will do it. And we know that your word is not going to return to us empty. But it will accomplish all that you seek us to accomplish. But you've called us to be ones who are speaking your word. Let this be the morning. It is a dreary day outside. But Lord, your son, as corny as this may sound, but Lord, we know this is true. Your son, by your spirit, is shining brightly. Cut through the darkness. Cut through our callousness. Rescue us. Save us from our sin. And show us how we may serve you. And may we say, yes, Lord. No longer being no saying yes, out of our bondage, out of our sorrow, out of our night, Jesus, Jesus, we come. Thank you for taking us. In Jesus' name, amen. The Holy Spirit is moving. You know what to do. You can either come to Christ, or if you haven't come, if you've already come to Christ, there may be a peace in you that's saying no to this mission. We, he's called us to say yes. And there may be some of you there that know that you need to be a part of this family of faith, but you're saying no. Not right. When he's calling you to do something, say yes. Mm-hmm. Let's stand together as we sing.